I don't think I'm meant to have favourite podcast episodes, but this has got to be up there. This is a very special episode that really, I found it very touching, but I hopefully you'll find it touching with this deeply personal connection between our team member, Jason, and the NHS. In this episode, he shares a personal story Um, He's one of our newest employees and it focuses on the unique journey of how their experiences, especially with Tourette's syndrome, have have really shaped the dedication of protecting the NHS. I don't want to say much more. I just want to delve straight in because Jason, thank you so much for sharing your story. And it is a pleasure to have you as part of the Quarter Cloud team. Jason, welcome to the podcast and to Quarter Cloud as the newest member of the team. Um, For our audience that are listening, would you be able to just introduce yourself and tell them how you're here today and a little bit of background about yourself? So in terms of my history, I actually started working with technology within the healthcare space Mm -hmm. uh, in 2015. Now I began my journey within the value-added reseller space um, and I was there for just over seven years. I ended up leading the healthcare team there for the past couple of years. Uh, That wasn't just cybersecurity, that was across the whole line of business IT. So you've got security, governance, infrastructure, virtualization and cloud and so forth. Mm -hmm. Now, I deliberately left that space because, as you can imagine, being in line of business for seven years, there was a massive gap in my knowledge around the clinical side of healthcare right. and the clinical operations and, and, and the patient care. So I moved from there to um, work in the realms of interoperability and automation, which mm-hmm. effectively was looking at how do the end users work? What is the challenges that the clinicians and operational staff face? Yeah. And how does this relay back onto the patient okay. um, and from that journey I also moved on again and, and worked in the realms of elective recovery uh, solutions and data management mm-hmm. so that was really more focused and tailored from the patient's side how do patients feel when things get delayed and then investigating how do these delays happen and effectively making the journey for the patients much more effective and from there I have then moved to quarter cloud you have from there, which I'm really looking forward to this uh, stage of my journey. So you, we've gone straight into a career and where you started, but just to uh, rewind and into young Jason, what does young Jason look like and what did he want to do? Because most people I talked to, including myself, did not be a young child and go, right, I'm going to go into cybersecurity marketing. So how, how, did, how did you get into that kind of like, what's the journey up to there? So my childhood and through sort of younger adolescents and and teens was I'm going to say a rather difficult journey now for everyone who's listening um, I don't know if you're aware or not but I have a condition called Tourette's syndrome I was showing signs of the condition just before three years old wow that young it's quite apparent really that young yeah I mean it can you can start seeing signs from as early as two Uh, but what tends to happen is it tends to get worse through obviously the big hormone changes so when I was seven I got um it went a little bit worse when I was in primary school where other people start to notice rather than my very close family and when I finished primary school I didn't have any high school education because my Tourette's through the puberty area got extremely bad to the point where and I don't know if you've seen the film Exorcist but 
a lot of my tics were focused around my neck and shoulders. Okay. So it was a constant case of tearing muscles. And with the nature of Tourette's, if you don't want to do something, you'll do it more. So I had to keep twitching that muscle. It was just, it was just awful. Now, back then, the challenge was, and, and the same across the world, not a lot of people, especially the clinicians, didn't know much around Tourette's syndrome. Okay. And that's a bit, um, uh, a bit, it was a bit shocking to me because the actual condition was diagnosed in the mid-1800s, I think 1759, I think, by Dr. Tourette's in France. Oh, that's where it came well, from. The way, the way that the NHS dealt with it back then was basically just to throw loads of different antipsychotic medication at you, so trial and error. Now, as most of the audience who's listen, listening to this who've had any experience with antipsychotics, most of the time the side effects are worse than condition itself and the way that they Jeez. try to control it is to slow the brain or the brain chemistry down but it doesn't just target it to rest it targets everything, everything so how, how you work my, yeah and, and most of my teenage years i was zombified oh, i mean no virtually no social life i did used to see some of my close friends every now and then but i remember the feeling after i was with them for about half an hour an hour i was craving to go back to bed I was just that tired and you get a really bad craving for it. It was just awful. And obviously just wanted to sleep. And I remember I was on these antipsychotic medications for many years. And I still, after high school years, I started working because I thought, what am I going to do? Am I going to sit here and mm. let the condition take over my life? Or am I going to push through? Yeah. And, and it is a mindset that you've got to have. But when I was working, I remember finishing work, wanting to go straight to sleep. When I got up in the morning, even after 12 to 14 hours sleep, I was still shattered as if I'd only had an hour. It was just awful. And that was only part of the side effects. It was a lot of awful ones. I mean, my naivety, and maybe this has been uh, gl glamorized through filming and Channel 4 and stuff, is that I thought Tourette was just like a language thing, that you were unable to control your language ticks. But it, my understanding is that wasn't your your thing. No, so there is a massive stigma in the world, and I know Tourette's Action the Charity are playing a massive part in changing that stigma, but there is only around 10, maximum 12% of people with Tourette's syndrome who have the vocal tics, and I can't remember, I think it's coprolalia and echolalia. Now, the coprolalia is the absurd language one where you swear and, and yeah. you say so gestures and stuff. And the echolalia is the repeating of words. So you may be watching ITV News, Trevor McDonald, and you'll say, now, war in, let's just say Russia, as an example, yeah. then you would want to shout and repeat that. Now, okay. when I was younger, I did have a small element of that, but that disappeared quite quickly. But the majority of Tourette's, which a lot of people don't realise, it isn't even what I believe is the physical side. A lot of it is the thought processes. Okay. Stopping your thinking, the intrusive thoughts. There is so much more than what people see to Tourette's. But yet again, it's one of those syndromes which is very superficial. People judge it by the way things look or what they see on Channel 4, which is renowned for displaying the most eye-grabbing aspects. So obviously you were in that point. You, were, you didn't really have what we would say a normal teenage period. You went into work and how, what was that the next phase of yours? Because you were obviously <coughs> still having the tics. Um, yeah. You were saying that you were tearing muscles in your neck. So like what, what was yeah. the, next, the next piece of that? Because that sounds very painful. It was. I remember, and it was actually my, my friends, because my friends were driving at the time. And ironically, 
I was able to drive even with wow. severe Tourette's syndrome because when you concentrate, and this is with a lot of people with the disorder, if you concentrate on certain cognitive movements or multiple cognitive movements, your symptoms die down. It's kind of a rechanneling of the brain communication. So driving them perfect, but as soon as I stepped out of the car, I was awful. I remember mm. when I was having a really bad tick attack, which is yeah. what it's called. My friend was driving me to hospital who and who then had to hold me down and put morphine in myself and loads of sedative stuff like um, liquid lorazepam and metazepam and oh stuff like that to try and calm me down or, or settle me for as long as possible to give myself a chance to repair. Yeah. But that really was. And this resonates into a lot of the challenges NHS face today. It's very much of a reactive healthcare rather than proactive. Of and, and that's seen across the board. Now, yes, there's loads of communications and actual work done to turn it into a more proactive um, healthcare system. And that alone, and because of my experience, is why I love working with the NHS. Okay, so obviously you're sat in front of me today you are healthy working you have a family and children so what was the next journey from you because at this point you're on morphine and obviously it doesn't seem very stable for you so when i was working this is back in the early to some early 2000s i did some research online and i discovered a procedure that was developed in america in the early 1990s and when i was reading through it there was loads of risks highlighted and there was very limited publication of success and it was called deep brain stimulation now actually uh, i kept reading would this be a chance because every human being gets to the point if you know for certain that things aren't changing and you know that you don't like the way things are, that's enough to make you think, right, I'm going to take a step forward no matter what the risk because the chance that the grass is green on the other side is always more appealing. So I went to um, my primary care GP practice uh, about what I'd researched. And ironically, and I think the timing was absolutely perfect, they mentioned that Salford Royal in Manchester NHS Foundation Trust was starting to do trials of deep brain stimulation. Now, that being said, for Tourette syndrome was a completely different story. Yes, for Parkinson's tremor and dystonia. Yeah. <clears throat> so for anyone who goes on YouTube, you type in deep brain stimulation, you'll always find a video. I think of a, an elderly man who's got Parkinson's and the effects are unbelievable. Instant yeah. effects. Yeah. Anyway, the GP reached out to the Royal NHS Foundation Trust and thank goodness to, and he's now Professor Silverdale, who actually accepted the challenge and then began the long many years of um, assessments because it is a very large operation, the psychological aspects to it and and your fitness aspects. And I had to do a load of CBT in between uh, cognitive behavioural therapy and different cognitive tests. After many years, I actually got onto the operation and I remember that day like it was yesterday. It was probably, it sounds really bad, I hope my children and, 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 and my wife aren't listening, but um, that was probably one of the most impactful and amazing days of my life. Oh, I can imagine, but that allowed you to see it because at that point, had you met your partner? Had you, was that even on the no, cards at that, that point? That was in your not life? on the cards. So, I mean, back then I had long hair down to my knees, massive rocker, and obviously getting a haircut when you had full blown Tourette's. It's just, oh yeah, I hadn't even, I hadn't even thought about things like that. Yeah, and stuff like drinking, I had to use sippy cups. Because if I was holding a glass of water and I twitched, I'd smash. And I remember clearly going up and down stairs, simple things that people think, oh, well, unless you're kind of in a wheelchair, you should be able to easily manage that, but not at all. It's because of the head movements. My balance was constantly going. But 
when I was 19, I got the the mentality of, hang on a minute, I've got Tourette syndrome. I can make jokes about myself faster than anyone else could even think them up. And was so that your I coping tend- mechanism? Was that to- it was a coping it was right. a coping mechanism and to be fair it actually worked really well so and i always refer back because the my mindset i have now is there is no such thing as a negative situation now yes if i went back to because i've gotten the stimulator in now and if i turn that off in the period of i think maximum two days and back to the way i was because mm-hmm. i can turn it on and off my, my my device so i think there's always a plus side as well as being very good at the sports dodgeball because i don't know where i was going to be next so <laughs> that's the way i look at life <laughs> Okay, so just to like, you obviously got accepted for the operation. How old are you at that point? I was 23. And then so you went back and told your family close that you were going for the operation. What was their emotional journey with that? Because obviously they knew the risk. To to be honest, I didn't say much. Um, I spoke to my mother and said, look, um, and and my father and said, look, I'm I'm trying to get onto this operation. But when it was happening, I didn't say anything because I thought at the end of the day, I could tell family members but why would I tell them and what would the impact be? Right. So ultimately, if I was to tell them and say, oh, it's a big operation, aren't you worried? You need to consider this more. And I'm not going to lie, but I probably considered it more in my own mind than any other person on the planet could even offer different angles to consider. Mm. Yeah. It's when, 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 you're between, when you're caught between a rock and a hard place, you want out. Of course. And it's, a, it's, it's kind of the, the basic mindset. And that's, and that's a really that, hard thing to have with your parents, isn't it? Right. It, it really is. Um, it was a hard conversation, but I remember um, the day before, because I, I was living in um, a flying Radcliffe on my own at the time. I remember getting up at four o'clock in the morning because I had to get on the bus for five to get to Salford Royal Hospital for six o'clock in the morning because the procedure was starting at quarter past six. Said they could get there 15 minutes early. Yeah. And I went through this side entrance. As soon as I got in there, they welcomed me. They got me straight. The best experience of my life. They got me a gown. It was like a first-class flight. And I got <laughs> on the bed. At 17 minutes past six, I remember going into the operating theatre. And that is what really took me back because it was quite a big... Um, you want to do the anaesthetic. Mm. And from floor to ceiling, there was machines all around the wall. A bit like Star Trek, sick bay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was between 15 and 20 people in white coats monitoring stuff. And I thought, ooh, Gordon Daniel is going to be like a sci-fi film. And once they gave me the anaesthetic, I was completely out. And I remember waking up 14 hours later and seeing the surgeon, and that was Dr. Evans who performed the brain surgery. And I thought to myself, Gordon Bennett, he looks tired. <gasps> Is that what you thought? Yeah, and I, I couldn't. Th- it was. I mean, for anyone who's had the operation, when you come out of anaesthetic, your mindset tends to be so unfocused and yet again focused at strange things. things You're not fully yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. But um, I was lucky because something was explained to me when I'd woken up. They said, um, and this was Professor Silverdale told me, he said, a lot of people who undergo deep brain stimulation potentially have um, something when they wake up called the stun effect. Right. Now, when you've had the surgery, your device isn't turned on because the brain swells up, so they've got to wait um, between two and four weeks. But the stun effect is for up to two weeks where people who've had the operation don't have any symptoms of the condition. And that's exactly what I had. Wow. And I got... I did get a bit euphoric. And I just remember looking at things like a brick wall thinking, Gordon Bennett, that is a bit of amazing architecture. Really is. And I got happy about everything because I So you were just so grateful of everything. I was. And I think there is an impact in saving lives. But for me, the biggest impact I could ever think of is giving someone a life that they wouldn't have had. 
And that's exactly what the NHS did to me. I mean, but I love that. But uh, I mean, I love, I don't know, you have children too, but do you love the innocence of your kids when they see something and they think it's so, so amazing? You know, stupid things. You know, like when you do the shopping and you bring yogurts, yeah. but they're in a squeezy packet rather than in your... Yeah. My son, like, oh my God, a yogurt comes in a squeezy pouch. It's the most amazing thing in the world. And you're just like, oh God, I wish I still had that. Like, and that you got that second feeling of that. It must be incredible. Yeah. So like lifting a glass of water up and drinking a glass of water, it was... <sighs> It was like it was like the best birthday present ever. It was it was strange. And I remember as soon as I had it done, the confidence my mm. confidence went beyond humanly possible. <laughs> it was it was like being reborn. It really was. Oh, it was great. Geez, that's, oh, it's such a lovely feeling. And then also he puts everything into life into such a huge perspective, right? To go through that yeah. and for you to experience that. And even me, like I had a bad morning with the kids this morning, I'm not gonna lie. Um, but just talking to you now just makes me feel really grounded that like, yeah, they, they annoyed the hell out of me, but God, how lucky am I to have them? So I need to go back and appreciate them a bit more. So I, I mean, you're bringing everyone up to speed on your journey, but also you, you really do love the experience that you had with the NHS. And really did that really was the driver into the career that you've gone into? So that very much started the flame burning. Now, okay. as soon as I had the operation, I took a completely different career path and I joined the prison service as oh. a prison officer. Interesting. Uh, and and when I was growing up, um, I loved Porridge, the sitcom. <laughs> yeah. And that honestly got my curiosity. I wonder what it's like working in an actual prison. And ironically, there was a lot of similarities. Mm. However, after two years, I found that sustaining the family life in the prison service and... It, it, it just wasn't my cup of tea. Right. It really huh. wasn't. So after two years, I left the prison service and I went straight into a tech role with the NHS. Because at my time through the two years in the prison service, obviously you've got um, the, the healthcare system within the justice system. Okay. And yes, you see in um, challenges and I, I was doing um, a lot of hospital visits with prisoners, effectively. Mm-hmm. And... All that experience of seeing prisoners and then and, and making and obviously when they're in bed after surgery or operations and, and their recovery, it kind of sparked it all off again for me. And that fire grew even more. Yeah. And I thought, how can I make a difference to the NHS? And not just how the NHS operates, but my mentality is I would I would love every single patient of the NHS to have an experience similar to myself. Mm. And that's what started me working in some form of capacity with the NHS, which I found the tech role. It's and interesting that you have that. Yeah. I, um, I, I, I don't know how many times I'm going to look at Joss. I think I tell this story quite a bit. But my, I wouldn't have told you. I don't know. Did I tell you this when we met? But my driver for drawing, so when I joined Quarter Cloud, I joined Freelance. Um, we were really small then. They didn't need a full-time marketeer, but they did need bits here and there and love James and Marks, but no idea about marketing. They knew they wanted to start this company. They wanted protection. They knew that cybersecurity was really important, but nothing about marketing. So came on as a little freelancer. Um, and I best way for me to understand was to go on site, right? So we went to our, one of our first big customers, which was Bolton Hospitals, and was there and we were using some of the technologies and having a look and it was kind of post WannaCry, so that all happened and um, Bolton hadn't been infected. And they were discussing all the impacts of um, of it and one thing was things like they couldn't get to blood fridges and blood banks. And I was... Um, I, I seem to grow children, not very good at giving birth to them, and um, had quite a traumatic birth for my daughter. It was only about 18 months prior. 
And it really triggered me that if I had had my daughter and had been in a hospital that had been impacted at WannaCry, would the outcome of me and her been so positive? And when I was with all these guys and clinicians, they couldn't really give me a straight answer. They were a bit like, we can't tell you, but yeah, it probably it probably wouldn't have landed as well because we wouldn't have been able to get your records and, and bloods and, and things like that. Um, and that was my driver, very similar to you. From that moment, it was like, oh yeah, cybersecurity is a cool and exciting thing to get involved in, but actually it can potentially have an impact on life. And then you scale it out to national infrastructure, right? And water and trains and, and planes and then businesses and then businesses that might hold my financial details or my parents' pensions. You know, it's it's all those things. And so I can completely empathize why it was a driver for you, coming at different angles, but yeah. <laughs> Exactly, and I think on a, on a similar nature, obviously, the deep brain stimulation that, and, and as a percentage, got rid of 90% of my condition, I've got technology within myself, and that really, really grounded and firmed my belief of if you combine a person, a process, and a technology together, you've got the ultimate outcome. People, process, and technology, we do love that. <laughs> exactly, and, and if you think of the biggest growth in any market or sector globally mm. is technology and innovation yeah and the way it is in today's world if you don't adopt or embrace all these new technologies processes innovations and mindsets then you are very much left behind and the effectiveness of the service that you're trying to deliver drops considerably mm. you're on the ground seeing your nhs customers i know you're very early doors in with us but you have been what are you seeing are maybe commonalities of problems that are coming up um what do you see as a perspective of the challenges faced on the healthcare system and how do you think that's going to impact people having the experience that you had yeah so there is quite a lot of uh, common commonalities that i see on, on a daily basis now yes i know on, on social media there's a very there's loads of publications around the clinical aspect in terms of waiting lists are rising people aren't getting seen enough and near enough every single person I speak to in the NHS around these aspects is the most common thing is resource and time. There isn't enough people in the day to complete everything that's needed on a daily basis. And yeah. the fact that all the, the, the human beings in the UK who demand healthcare aren't necessarily all simple. There is a lot of complex cases. Mm. And I think one of the biggest aspects to the lack of time and I've spoken to quite a few people, not just kind of CNIOs and CCIOs, but also from line of business, kind of your, your, your ops managers, people who look after systems. Yeah. The, ch the challenge they've got a lot of the time is if you go back to when technology was provided into the NHS originally, mm. it was provided by a feature. There were tools for technical people. Yeah. And that, the world is changing, thank goodness, but that alone has caused so many challenges mm. at the end of the day to provide something that's going to be of benefit to any organizational individual number one it's got to be usable it's yeah. got to fulfill a purpose and most of all it, if you think of technology as a tool by individuals it's got to be a tool that they can use mm. and not just use now but use in the future as well mm -hmm. it's got to support the growth the vision and as the ics plans always stated the liquid outcomes yeah making sure that because outcomes change yeah so it's yeah, got yeah. to be able to be adaptive and diverse yeah 
and and, it, and it's complex, isn't it? Because the NHS is all or like you know legacy systems. Uh, you know they've got. I, I didn't realize until I got into this. Like I assumed every NHS hospital was built the same. They had the same systems. They were using the same stuff, and that that is also not the case. It's kind of like a yeah, a whole different depending on what what trust you're in. It, it, it really is, and even though I think the whole um, formation of the integrated care systems was to try and consolidate and unify technology across the region, mm. you've still got on it, this probably won't go away anytime soon, even though shadow IT is slowly closing down, you've got different departments responsible for a multitude of different systems. So finance will have their system. And yes, maybe a system manager there who manages the technical side of the system, but the finance people use that. Mm. And there was a, well, Put it in perspective, there was a hospital I was speaking to a couple of months ago who had plus 700 applications. Wow. Now, and I, and I know it will be coming out more apparent over the next few months or so, that hospitals are going to start putting on all of their strategy and transformation plans that they need to dramatically reduce their application estate. Because obviously the more applications, the harder it is to manage and let alone the security risks, because a lot of applications in the NHS, as anyone who understands the NHS will be aware, will only run on a specific version of an operating system. Yeah. And there is still Microsoft Excel 2003, well, sorry, SQL Server 2003 mm. in place for certain applications. Mm. Which is a risk. And Huge it, it really is. And not just the managing but the, the overheads in terms of the infrastructure support all that as well it's yeah it's really the best position okay so lots of challenges ahead and that's why we're so glad you've joined the team <laughs> um and that I'm, I'm and really yeah and you're working alongside josh and allison in the team for anyone that's not aware we've got a whole public sector team in in place at quarter cloud so if anyone is listening then please do reset reach out as, and reach out to jason going back to the Tourette's piece um we kind of did like the whole stigma and people thinking it's kind of maybe about swearing and things like that and you've kind of addressed the misconceptions of that I guess um for me um being on the board and um you know having influence of what quarter cloud is and the culture of, of a workplace how do we make it more inclusive and supportive and how is that how can we put into place strategies because obviously you're an incredible asset to the team um but you know how, how do people get get these kind of things wrong i guess so i think it's very much a balance in terms of how you approach this now when i joined quarter cloud it's probably one of the best experiences i've ever had mm, and the sole purpose or the, the main founder of that experience was a level of empathy and understanding Mm -hmm. And I think for any organisation out there who listens to this, who are looking to have a more diverse employee base, you don't necessarily, and I'd probably recommend against, basically restructuring your whole organisation to accommodate a disorder. Now, that may sound, oh, hang on a minute, it's, uh, I sound against the idea of employing people yeah. with disorders or making it more challenging. Yeah. But with my mindset, if all my life, my condition was 100% accommodated, I wouldn't be where I was today. There has to be that level from an individual to push yourself like to adapt to society, which, which, which may not fully adopt yourself because you've got to step out of your comfort zone at some point or another. Mm. And I've seen so many charts where you'll have staying in your comfort zone and where you can get to mm. with that 
attitude, those actions. Whereas if you step outside your comfort zone, uh, it's an old, very cheesy saying, so I do apologise for anyone who's listening with any potential heart condition, the amount of cheese in this, but the world is your oyster if you step out of your comfort zone. But do you think it's like your superpower? Like, I mean, I've been doing this podcast and unveiling and learning a lot about me. Like, I knew I had dyslexia and I knew I have dyscalculia. I got diagnosed at university. Um, but I've also thought that it's probably my superpower in the sense that it's my creativity. And I'm actually going through the podcast now and for this, I'm actually going through um, a private testing for ADHD. Um, and because of that like I every time I've been diagnosed with something it like kind of knocks me back and make me think oh I'm different from everyone else or oh that means I can't do this or I'm rubbish at maths and all these things and then when I started the ADHD thing and finding out symptoms and stuff like that but I've actually learned that that's probably why I'm like you get quite obsessive with certain things um the energy thing I completely understand of you like I put so much into work then when I come out of work I struggle with the other information it also note it helps me with ADHD because you're not very good at maybe sticking to one task. But in marketing, you're spinning so many plates. If I just stuck to one thing, we'd probably never deliver anything, right? Like we've got a website and email. So do you actually think sometimes things that are classified as a disability actually can be our superpower? 100% I do. Now, I know I'm extremely gifted with Tourette's syndrome. I just haven't found my gift yet, as, as you will. But um, <laughs> You have found your gift. <laughs> I think with with any form of syndrome or disability, and I don't like using that word, and but I believe that yes, you can get a lot further now. Thinking about what I do now mm-hmm. at Quarter Cloud and what I have done for the over the past sort of over coming up to nine years now working with the NHS, the fact that I have Tourette syndrome have that empathy and understanding of a complete wide range of movement disorders from dystonia tremors small amounts of Parkinson's disease, but also um, elements of Asperger's syndrome as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, we we um, had this conversation that actually a lot of people that go into highly analytical data, IT jobs, yes. are generally <laughs> with, have these kind of tendencies. So, yeah. Uh, but I think any form of characteristic such as something like something people can see physically where it may not be what they class as normal or or it could be the, the communication language it differentiates a person mm. for a good way it yeah. really does yeah yeah it makes so, it stand out uh, and what uh, is normal uh, by the way i do want to know yeah, what, that, uh, what is normal uh, what's the baseline of normal it's, it's an awful word and <laughs> i've yet to find someone who's ever said oh i just what i'd like to be identified as completely normal because i couldn't think of anything more black and white and boring as being normal yeah every individual is their own individual and it may be the case where you look at 10 people in the line they all look identical but three of them may have a complete addiction to chocolate bars and eat thousands of chocolate bars the other three may look identical but they may play in a band everyone is their own person right and I think people have got to embrace change a lot more than what they have been, not just in, in, in business work, but in, in people as well. Yeah, and Completely. it makes life way more interesting and far more colourful. And like the diversification. I mean, that's the one thing I've loved being about Quarter Cloud, because every time someone new comes in, they bring something different, some angle, something yes. fresh, some different perspective. And even with just working with my own team, they'll come in and... Yeah, I always use the motto of hiring much better than myself because they bring in something much cooler, cleverer that I'm like, oh, that's that's visionary and that and that's incredible. So just to end on a high, and you kind of covered them all, 
you've identified challenges that you've you faced what personal and professional triumphs have you faced and the challenges and triumphs that you've learned how would you anyone else listening that maybe has Tourette's or maybe has a syndrome that holds them back what what are your lessons learned to kind of like a closer for the podcast one of my biggest triumphs today even though I've got more to come way would more. have been present well wait yeah way, way, more, more, but, uh, way more would have been presenting in person at the healthcare strategy forum mm. now if you can think someone with Tourette's syndrome going on stage in front of 60 to 100 people yeah oh that could be a recipe for disaster <laughs> but the way the way I handle that because it's something that I've always wanted to do and want to increase doing and I will be in the, in the foreseeable future mm. is an awareness piece to start with so when I go on stage, I'm not going to stand on stage and my condition's going to go AWOL and people are going to think, oh, what's happening? Mm. I'm going to be open. And I think communication is absolutely key yeah. to set the stage. Yeah. So I'll make, as I mentioned before, when I was 19, I adopted that mindset of, hang on a minute, I can make a joke about myself faster than anyone else. Mm. I'll open up with a joke on stage. Mm. I'll actually say, look, if anyone sees me twitching on stage, there's nothing to worry about. I have Tourette's syndrome. Swearing isn't part of my condition. However, if I do, I was born in bed in Manchester. <laughs> I think things like that really create a calming and that kind of warming environment. And once people start laughing, you're all part of the same person anyway. You really are. Yeah, yeah. No, and that's it. Like you said, again, at the end of the day, we're all human beings, all trying to find our way on our little bit of journey and our own, on our own little on piece on this. Jason, thank you very much for sharing your story. If anyone is listening and wants to reach out or connect with you, whether that's about Tourette's or how you can support them if they work in the NHS, what's the best way to contact you? Definitely. Well, I'm extremely active on LinkedIn. You are. So definitely find me on LinkedIn uh, uh, as well as email address as well, which will be on my profile LinkedIn. Perfect. Thank you, Jason. And I hopefully you'll come back on the podcast sometime soon. 100%. Thank you very much for having me, Kelly. conclude this special episode of the core introducing our latest member of the team jason um i have a deeper and greater understanding of his personal connection and the drive of why he wants to protect the nhs not only that he has been so open in sharing his story about tourette's i feel like i'm better educated um and i do believe that he'll be on far more and i do hope that quarter cloud will be a platform that we can help all his research and all his information i don't think he mentioned either that he's been um approached to a ted talk so i think we need to uh, also bring him on for that if he hasn't done that yet or was looking to do it but anyway i love that um it really reminds me of my fire of why i've joined joined quarter cloud also just the incredible people that we have on this team um and the drivers of why they want to protect um yes so thank you so much thank you so much for sharing your personal story um jason um and your commitment to the public health i do hope you can join us for future episodes for all our audience um we continue to explore the human side of healthcare, the impact of that and of course the impact of cyber security um I also didn't ask him our closing question. Why why join a career in cybersecurity? But I think 
he highlighted why he joined. Um, and I hope any of you that want to maybe explore joining healthcare or NHS or want to join protecting the NHS, that you would consider joining this amazing journey of cybersecurity. <laughs>